And you, O Lord, have we taken refuge. For the sake of your name, lead us and guide us. Amen. Good evening, Trinity Church. In the 25th chapter of Matthew, last week's parable of the bridesmaids immediately precedes today's parable of the talents. And just as last Sunday's lesson was not about oil or lamps or marriage, neither is today's gospel about journeys or investing or enslavement. Rather, in in both stories, Jesus draws on imagery of institutions common to his listeners and deploys hyperbole to rattle loose fresh perspectives and to provoke more faithful day-by-day living. Rhetorically, Matthew arranges these stories within a chiasmus, that X-shaped structure, A, B, C, C, B, A, reiterating pairs of related ideas from fresh angles with new perspectives. And in the sum of these two chapters, Jesus establishes constancy and loyalty to God's reign as our essential faithfulness. There's your topic sentence. Hear it again. Jesus establishes constancy and loyalty to God's reign as our essential faithfulness. I invite you to uh, open your pew Bibles to chapter 24 of Matthew's gospel. Or if you prefer, you can conjure on your smartphone oremus.org forward slash Bible, O-R-E-M-U-S dot org forward slash Bible, and call up the same citation. Matthew chapter 24. You'll see as the chapter begins that we find Jesus and his disciples leaving the Jerusalem temple. The disciples point out to Jesus the temple's marvels, prompting this soliloquy that will continue clear through today's gospel and even next week's appointment as well. In response to their wonderment, Jesus declares, Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left upon another, all will be thrown down. Understandably concerned about this news, the disciples approach him that evening, and in verse 3 they ask, So, uh, Can you tell us when this will be and what will be the sign of your coming? You know, asking for a friend. Jesus responds with warnings of the persecutions his followers will face. Warnings of the desolating sacrilege that will come to the temple. Warnings of the false messiah and false prophets who will produce great omens to lead the elect astray. Then in this chapter's penultimate section, beginning with verse 36, Jesus shifts from describing the end times to urging the faithful's more immediate readiness, and he does so using imagery from domestic life, recalling, for as in those days of Noah before the flood, they were marrying and giving in marriage, and they knew nothing until the waters came and swept them away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Finally, as the chapter concludes, Jesus enjoins the disciples' loyalty with the story of a slave entrusted with his master's possessions, mourning that the master of that slave will return on a day when he does not expect and at an hour that he does not know. 
So the chiasmus begins with idea A, Jesus' apocalyptic vision of verses 4 through 35. Continues with idea B, the domestic imagery urging readiness in verses 36 through 44. And then idea C, the slave-master imagery urging loyalty in verses 45 to 51. So reading the chapter within this intentional form, we realize Jesus does not propose God as Goodfellas Tommy DeVito, warning us that that God is going to chop us into little pieces. You think I'm funny? Funny how? Like I'm a clown? I amuse you? Of course not. Though check verse 51. And be sure that's exactly how it reads. Rather, this sensationalism helps us to recognize the judgments are rhetorical devices intended to teach us that our lives in this age, in this moment, they have consequence for God's reign. In the here and now, we have choices to make, and those choices make a difference to ourselves, to one another, and to God. Chapter 25 reopens the chiasmus and repeats the earlier domestic imagery, this time in the parable of the ten bridesmaids. Jesus concludes the first story, therefore you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. And, And this parable in chapter 25 ends with a nearly identical claim. Verse 13, you'll read there, keep awake therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, in in a chiasmus, the the reiterated ideas will differ slightly from the originals. Therefore, in addition to identifying their resonances in the coupled stories, we also look for distinctions between those, for example, two women of chapter 24 who grind meal together and the women of this parable. In chapter 24, those taken and those left behind have little agency in determining their fate. They're not unfaithful exactly. Instead, they they tend their daily tasks without any sense of an approaching fulfillment, a nearing consequence. If we continue with the Goodfellas casting, this is Karen Friedman at the beginning of the film, a mostly naive neighborhood girl who falls for the wrong guy and is not yet complicit in his crimes. In chapter 25, however, the bridesmaids have the wedding to orient them. And the wise who are are ready, who are prepared, they enter the banquet when that glad time comes. While last minute scurrying for oil distracts the foolish and they miss the opportunity. See, the wise bridesmaids have faithfully aimed their daily labor here, managing oil for their lamps, toward a purpose greater than their situation. Yet for the foolish bridesmaids, their their busyness, it becomes its own end, distracting them from the groom's arrival. Maybe not so different from Henry Hill's frantic paranoia near the end of that film, when the police helicopters, you remember, follow him around all day as he and Karen roll from payphone to payphone in their stretched Cadillac, yet rather than changing his priorities or wiping the white powder from his upper lip, he goes about his business, picks up a sack full of guns and worries about the babysitter keeping the sauce from sticking to the side of the pot on the stove back home. I mean, all of us viewers can see Hill's end approaching like 
an inevitable freight train, but overwhelmed by his daily obsessions, he ignores all the signs. Turning toward the parable of the talents, we we search for resonances with its companion story, the one that concludes chapter 24. Now, we can begin with the obvious repetition of the slave-master relationship. And we note, too, that both stories conceive these circumstances to reveal the servant's true character. Likewise, in both stories, the master entrusts his property to those he leaves behind, and those who prove trustworthy are promised greater responsibility and status. In the first story, Jesus announcing in verses 46 and 47, Blessed is that slave whom the master will find at work when he arrives. Truly, I tell you, he will put that one in charge of all his possessions. In today's gospel, after a long time, the master returns and requests an accounting of his property. And we remember how the parable goes. When the slaves who had received five and two talents come forward and present their profits, the master responds enthusiastically, understating for effect the amounts that had been returned as witnessing responsibility over a little. These are grand sums, do not be fooled, and promising that they will now be set over much. The master's magnanimity with the first two builds hope that he will be generous with the third. And then the polemical hammer comes crashing, Joe Pesci style, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter. As the parable intends, this reaction offends our sense of fairness, the inequitable assessment of ability, the unequal distribution of talents, the shaming of this last servant who has been set up to fail from jump. Given the gangster bamboo lounge vibes of the judgments to this point, I can understand his fearfulness. Even so, realize that all the slaves receive a response that meets their expectations exactly. The first two expect the best, and the best comes to pass. The last one cowers in fear from the worst, and the worst comes calling. While the master does not enter a defense of his reaping and gathering his sarcasm, you knew, did you? Implies a third servant has mischaracterized him. The parable concludes with more sensationalized judgment. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a fate we should read as hyperbolically as the affirmations of the first two. That X-shaped structure, A and B, C, B, and then A. When we mark the reign of Christ next Sunday, we will complete the chiasmus and consider chapter 25's redevelopment of the earlier apocalyptic warnings with that familiar division of the, the sheep from the goats. You remember that one when we start to figure out, now, is the left and the right, is that from the perspective of the altar or from the nave? Am I a sheep or am I a goat? And then the king who welcomes the faithful with the encouraging words, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom 
prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. While recasting a gospel parable with characters from scenes from a Martin Scorsese drama may, may seem a stretch, realize that his films, you know, they captivate us by his depiction of gangsters as something like ordinary people whose stories have footholds in our own. As kids who grew up on the block looking up to the older boys down the street, as, as families with electricity bills and professional aspirations, shall we call them. As friends with, with meaningful camaraderie, even if their connection finds fullest expression while they spend several years together in prison. Goodfellas calls us to see ourselves in, in the alleys and bars we customarily avoid and helps us to recognize its characters in the safe settings we do inhabit and reflects all of us caught in this world's competing gears, one brutal and one good, one withholding and one gracious. And through the, the good fellas God of Matthew 24 and 25, we recognize these same dueling economies at work. One turning and grinding for the world's judgment and one earning were the Christ's generosity. We can read the parable of the talents conclusion in verse 29. For to all those who have more will be given and they will have an abundance, but from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. We can read this not, not as a judgment of what is to come, but as an observation of what is already true. The dystopian end of the age and the reign of God, both already underway. And in such a circumstance, Jesus establishes constancy and loyalty to God's reign as our essential faithfulness. We must decide to which gear, to which economy we will dedicate ourselves. Day by day, task by task, appreciating that all we do, all we choose in this age, in this moment, now, ha has a greater consequence, not for ourselves only, but for the very reign of God. And the parable warns if we invest ugliness, then that ugliness will be returned. Not by God's judgment, but by our choosing. Yet if we are generous as God is generous, then the return of grace will be more than we could possibly ask or imagine. that we would be loyal companions in this household of God. Amen. Amen.